Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hi, welcome back. It's Mike here from Adaptify. Thanks so much for joining me. Before I introduce today's guest, have you visited Adaptify.com? If you go there, you can see all the previous Adaptifiers and their profiles, including a short story and links to their social media profiles and some images. Thoroughly recommend it, Adaptify.com. Right, today's guest is Natalie McGloin from the UK. Super excited to have Natalie on the show. She, in my mind, is a celebrity in the motorsport world and the disability community. Uh, and Natalie is an adaptifier through and through. She's the first female tetraplegic in the world to be a race car driver. Uh, thoroughly interesting story about her background and uh, she has a lot of good stuff to share, a lot of positivity, a lot of energy. Uh, Natalie, welcome to the show. So good to have you on here. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to uh, have this chat with you tonight. Um, I love what you do. So uh, really, really excited to be part of it. Thank you. Thanks so much. So for the listeners out there, Tell us a little bit about uh, about you and how you ended up in this adaptive community of ours, Natalie. So when I was 16 in 1999, um, I broke my neck at level C67 in a car crash. Um, in 2015, I became the first woman with a spinal cord injury to be granted a racing license in the UK. So I race cars against able-bodied men. Um, and I guess that's that's the, the main kind of crux of my story and how I ended up in this community that's uh, that's now my home. Well, okay. So for those listening, C67, what does that mean? And what, what does that mean in terms of the impact on both on your body and your mind? So C67 is the last bone in your neck. So um, I have limited uh, finger dexterity. Um, my triceps are slightly affected as well. Um, so I have um, full um, kind of shoulder function and uh, bits and pieces, but I'm what you what you term an independent uh, quad. So I'm fortunate enough to be left with enough function that I can independently um, transfer, drive, um, dress myself, etc., uh, etc. Et so um, I'm on kind of the good the good end in terms of function of neck breaks, but um, I think most quads will tell you that they would long to be a para. So <laughs> it's um, it's just one of those things that you you kind of have to learn to relive your life in terms of what your hands can do. So gripping stuff is an issue. So uh, it's about adaptifying your uh, your life in terms of what you can uh, what you can achieve with the hand function you've got left. So. Mobility-wise, uh, wheelchair is your uh, primary means of, of movement. Um, aside, yes. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about being a 16-year-old with that, you know, with that, um, with that injury. What, what was that like uh, in your final years of school? Yeah, so I had literally just two weeks into A-levels, so – I'd done my GCSEs in, in the UK. GCSEs are mandatory um, education for for kids and um, further education is obviously um, 
you know, you can choose to go to college or whatever you want to do. So I had um, just enrolled in sixth form. I was just finding my way with that new independence that voluntary education had kind of given me. And uh, yeah, breaking your neck at 16 is tough. It was um, it was a real smack in the face because I had a part time job. Um, I had a boyfriend and I really felt like I was just starting to become kind of an adult, um, making university choices, thinking about moving away from home. And suddenly you're extremely dependent on medical staff, um, on friends and family. And I think the worst thing for me was being in the spinal unit um, was was tough, surrounded by, you know, other people going through the same thing. But all of my friends were at school getting on there with their lives without me. So, you know, there's there's the the functional and the and the kind of practical side of of breaking your neck. But I think, you know, someone who is that age, school and social life are, are really important. And I, I was feeling that that was kind of slipping away at times. So I know here in New Zealand, a, f- a few people of that age with spinal cord injuries um, and, you know, I, I know from speaking with them that they find that social aspect really, really tough. And at that age, you're formulating your sort of dreams and ideas about, you know, your life outside of school. What uh, what helped you um, get through that that period? I, um, I can remember exactly the moment that I kind of stopped being or found a different kind of focus. So and stopped being almost like a victim of the injury. And I've always been quite stubborn and I've always had kind of a rebellious streak in me. And um, a lady was brought into the spinal unit by the nursing staff who had a similar level of injury to me. And they brought her in to, um, for her to show me how she did her hair and makeup with her reduced hand function and grip. And as she left the spinal unit, the nurses said to me, that um, she couldn't independently transfer at home and that she used a hoist and that she drove her car for, or an adapted van from her electric wheelchair. And they said that that was something that perhaps I should consider. And I just remember feeling really annoyed. Uh, I, I felt like the, they didn't know me. They didn't know what I was capable of achieving and why should my standards be set by someone else's. And I can remember that was the first time I felt like a bit of a spark kind of reignite that I'd been used to kind of using for the wrong reasons when I was able-bodied and a tearaway teenager. Um, But it was something that did fuel a bit of a fire. And not long after that, I was introduced to wheelchair rugby, which was the absolute making of me. Wow, really? Um, You so often hear of of medical staff saying things like, oh, you're never going to walk again, or, um, you know, giving you some advice that, may actually just be trying to put you in some sort of box or, or it gives you that feeling that they're going to put you in a box. So I really like that you you were able to just go, actually, you know what, even though someone's saying this to me, I reckon I can do this. Uh, you know, I, I commend you for that. And I think anyone else there listening, um, you don't have to be put in a box. So, you know, tell tell me a bit about uh, wheelchair rugby. What was the first uh, What was the first experience with that like? So um, a few weeks after the lady had been brought into the spinal unit, the, my physio actually brought in another patient or an ex-patient who had the same level of injury as me called Alan Smith. 
And he had been on a sailing course in Southampton or Portsmouth, which is in the south of the country, about a six hour drive from the spinal unit that I was in. And he was heading home to go to a wheelchair rugby training session. And he would come, he was planning to come by the gym to speak to me about how he could independently transfer. Now, this guy was already, you know, fairly high up um, in my opinion polls because I barely had energy to push from my bed to the gym. So this guy driving all that way and finding the energy to come in and see me on the way to another sports session was was cool. And I actually asked if I could go to the session with him um, where I met a number of other guys with similar level of injury to me and, and no one was driving adapted vans no one was you know limited by um what had happened to them they were all independently transferring they were all really aggressive in their sport which I really liked and um I think the main thing for me with that was they were proof that there was like life after spinal injury so um I instantly connected with that and um I made a promise to myself that when I'd got out of the rehab unit and I'd gone back to school and got my A-levels that I would find a wheelchair rugby team so that I could I could have a piece of it. Wow, that's phenomenal. And so at this point, uh, I presume you're still living with your parents. When did you make yeah. the transition out to living independently? So um, I always promised myself when I was injured that my injury wouldn't stop me from doing what I was going to do before I'd broken my neck. So when I'd um, done my 11 months in the rehab unit, I was out for two weeks and went straight back to school. Um, I obviously had to drop down a year because I'd missed out a year of the um, the education. So I, I dropped down into the year below and I continued to do the, the courses that I had picked before my injury. And I continued on my life to choose my university and um, two years after I had been discharged, I got my A-levels and I moved out of the family home to Nottingham University into halls, um, which were around two and a half hours from, from where I lived. But I, I really, really threw myself in at the deep end because I'd managed to barely kind of scrape by in terms of being independent at home where I was really um, dependent on kind of mobility aids. So I could shower, but I had to have my shower chair and I could transfer onto the bed, but it had to be a certain height. And I could barely get in and out of the car, but I could with a bit of kind of gritting my teeth. So I went with no support network whatsoever and just threw myself into it and thought, right, well, I'm either going to sink or swim. Unfortunately, I kind of head was just bobbing above above the water for the first kind of month. Wow, that's awesome. I remember uh, my wife and I bought my son his first uh, bed. You know, he was three when I had my accident. And yeah. it, it had these drawers that were under the bed, so it's quite high. And I remember saying, oh, I really don't think we should get in this bed because I can't transfer onto it and I can't. I won't be able to read him stories. But it was such a great bed. It was made of timber and it was just a beautiful bed. And in the end, uh, in the end, we just we bought it because it was an ideal uh, size for the room that we had for him. And you know what? I I learned to transfer onto it. You know, I did these high transfers. But if I had just said, "Oh no, it's not the right height," um, I probably never would have put myself in that situation where I had to learn to do something. I had to adapt beyond what uh, what what I was led to believe. Uh, you know, I could do. So, you know, I think 
for everyone out there listening also, I think, you know, you don't know what you can't do until you've, you know, tried a number, a number of times. And surprise, surprise, you probably end up going to be able to do some of those things that you thought you couldn't. So, um, completely agree. Yeah. So, okay. So you're in the halls and studying university and wheelchair rugby became, uh, you know, continued focus for you. How far did you go with that? So I, I went to my first training session. I think it was the summer um, that I, oh no, sorry. I went to my first training session, I think just after Christmas of the university term in halls in my first year. And then I went to my first tournament the summer of my first year at uni. Um, and my, I was, I was fortunate that my, um, my local wheelchair rugby uh, team trained in the neighboring university, which was about a 20 minute drive away. And we went to our first tournament in Stoke Mandeville and I absolutely fell in love with the sport because these, the guys that were playing were just, they were doing things that I really didn't think possible to, to do as a, a tetraplegic, um, you know, and, and nothing was an effort. Everything was just easy and there was no treading on eggshells around, you know, what, what living with a spinal injury meant. Everything was just a joke. So, you know, it, I, I went from being quite afraid of people knowing about my spinal injury and how it affected me in, in that kind of regard and feeling a bit like an outsider at university to something where I was so relaxed with these guys and I just felt like they were my family instantly. And I just, I wanted to be part of it. So I then just started um scheduling scheduling my university work around training with um the nottingham team and i ended up training with the birmingham team as well and i just i couldn't get to enough tournaments i just everything was focused on wheelchair rugby and i just i really started to feel like i'd, I'd finally come to terms and actually starting to move forward so is wheelchair rugby something that people get paid to do no 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 it's uh so I was I was playing um, so for a national team, uh, sorry a club team. So even when I started playing, there was no funding for um, athletes at, at GB level. I think they they lost their funding. I think a couple of years ago, uh, which but the funding when I talk about funding, it pays for expenses. It, it's not a salary. You don't you don't get. I don't think you get money for. I think you can get it through sponsorship and other means, but um, no, it, it, it's it's not a job. It, it's a passion. And uh, when I was doing it, it was, you know, I, I paid for my equipment and I paid for the travel, but I, I was in a fortunate situation that I had a compensation payout for my injury. So the money wasn't really an issue to me. Um, but I think even if it wasn't, and it's easy to say, but I think I would have found a way instrumental in, in my becoming an independent and a, and a happy um, person. So, you know, it, I think I would have found a way regardless. Is there assistance out there for equipment and expenses for these sort of things? Uh, you know, if you if you weren't fortunate enough to have an insurance payout or some other support financially, uh, how, how do people get involved in, in wheelchair rugby, for instance? Um, there are charities that um, run in the UK and I think all across the world uh, that will fund sports equipment for uh, disabled people. The, the Matt Hampson Foundation is, is one of the big, big ones. Regain, Aspire, they're all 
really great charities that help people who want to take up sport as uh well, either competitive or you know as, as their kind of career or just something to do on a Wednesday night it's um you know because I think with with disabled people it's especially disabled people who are reliant on sports chairs trying a sport and starting a sport is difficult and it is expensive because you know you're able-bodied and you want to go running you buy a pair of trainers mm. uh you're a spinal injury who to compete in basketball wheelchair rugby or athletics then you know they're expensive they're about five or six thousand pounds same in euros at the moment because of the the great things that are going on with brexit but uh, <laughs> the uh, i don't know how that uh, translates um to new zealand dollars but um it's, it's not cheap so at first if you do get involved with a sports club you usually have the advantage or the um, the opportunity to, to to try out their chairs. They will usually have a, a bank of, of equipment that you can try and, and they will let you use that for as long as, you know, you decide to use it for. But usually it's not fit for you and you can't be at your optimum in it because, you know, these things need to fit like a glove and every sh body shape and disability is different. So mm. um, it's not... It is difficult getting into sports like that, but I think you have to have the motivation to want to do it and to persevere like anything in life. Um, so it, it, it's slightly more difficult than able-bodied stuff, but not impossible. Hey, so tell us a bit about uh, what, what happened at the end of your wheelchair rugby um, career. Why did you, why did you give, give that away? So um, in 2012, I had some Botox um, on my bladder and um, I got what's called Botox poisoning. So the Botox got into my bloodstream and it deposited, deposited all over my body. And um, my weak muscles from my spinal injury were, were made even weaker. And I struggled to even, even get myself in and out of bed. Um, and this lasted for nine months. Whilst the Botox uh, wore off and I regained the, the strength in the muscles where they weren't because the Botox kind of paralyzes the muscles, if you like. Why did you have so, Botox for those listening? What, what's the Botox for in, in your bladder? Uh, so most people with um, my level of spinal injury will suffer from an over-reflexive bladder. So it just allows you to, um, to hold more and, and just go to the loo less frequently um, and, and just relaxes the overactivity of the bladder muscles uh, it's quite a common procedure with um, most spinal injuries these days, actually. But I think the the advice usually is if you've had Botox poisoning once, you're susceptible to it and the likelihood is you'll have it again. Um, I think I also got it when I had some Botox in my calf muscles from um, my, my feet were uh, just I was getting a bit of drop foot because my muscles were too tight. And I got it then when I was... Um, I think when I was 17, but I didn't know what it was at the time. So mm. it's uh, it's Botox for spinal injuries and for other disabilities can be really, really good. And the effects that it had on my bladder were brilliant. But the side effects of the Botox poisoning, I couldn't go through that again. So, um, yeah, in having that, I had to kind of step out of the uh, I was on the GB development squad at the time and. I had to take some time out because I couldn't I couldn't push a wheelchair. I was so weak. And when I came back to um, the GB trials to try and regain my position on the squad, once the Botox poisoning had worn off and I was able to train properly again, 
I just I went to the trials and, and it wasn't the same. I just I felt like that passion that had driven me to want to give rugby my absolutely everything had just died. And I knew without that that I could never be the athlete that I wanted to be and that I would never be satisfied with my progress in rugby. So I I decided that I needed something else. And um I, I still trained with rugby, but my focus wasn't there in terms of wanting to achieve what I'd always wanted to achieve, which was Paralympics. And mm. um, I started to look for other things. It would have left a bit of a hole, right? I mean, I know after achieving in, in one particular field or sport and then, like you say, losing that passion, I did it with mountaineering. And the the sort of gap in my life afterwards was – was tough to deal with until you found that next thing. That's that's sort of how I roll, I guess. Um, how did you discover your next thing, and and how uh, and what was that? So I'd um, whilst training for GB before I'd uh, I had to take the time off. Um, I'd been introduced to track days. So um, track days, for those that don't know, are basically people driving their road cars, all race cars, around motorsport circuits and. I had no idea that this was a thing until I met someone in a wheelchair rugby tournament in Toulouse who challenged me um, to a a track day because he told me that his car was faster than mine. Um, (laughs) So I I agreed to go along and I absolutely loved it. It was something that I'd never experienced post-injury before because it's run on a normal day and disabled drivers go out and have fun at the same time as able-bodied drivers and the concept of my disability being completely invisible when I was out on the track was something that I really, really enjoyed. Um, So that had been kind of in the background as a hobby whilst I was still in, in the kind of the pursuit of Paralympic um, rugby. And when I decided that that change of direction was needed, um, I'd been doing track days for five or six years and decided that I would investigate getting my racing license. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Hey, so what sort of car were you driving? And and presumably you, was this just a, your regular car that you used um, to and fro like domestically, or was it an actual, you know, high performance car of some description? Well, it was a car that I used domestically but it was a 911 turbo, so a Porsche 911 turbo. So, <laughs> uh, it, awesome. it was my, yeah, and I, I appreciate that, you know, everyone doesn't have the uh, the ability to be able to, to to do that because, like I say, my, my compensation payout was uh, was something that I was very fortunate to be, um, to, 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 to have uh, after my injury. So, um, yeah, I, I, I bought uh, a 911 when I was at university and, um I progressed it up to a 911 Turbo when um, I'd been doing track days for a few years. So I, I was I was used to the speed and the adrenaline that that kind of kick in the back of the head gives you when you're uh, accelerating <laughs> in, in something with uh, 600 horsepower and a twin turbo on the engine. Um, oh man! So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got to I've got to do that. I have got to do that anyway. But uh, well, okay, that's cool. That that gives, gives me some context. Um, so essentially, you were uh, you were well on your way to uh, to motorsport. 
um, or understanding the the power of a of a car like that. Um, yeah. What what happened next? What was the license pro- process like? So when I was um, getting my license, uh, the process was quite long winded. So um, I did everything that a non-disabled driver would have to do. So you have to um, obviously fill in the application form and produce a medical and all of those processes. And then you undertake a driving exam in your car on a racing circuit and you're assessed in terms of your skills as a driver. And then you take a um, theory test in a classroom um, to demonstrate that you know the safety procedures involved in uh, in racing in the UK. And after that, because of my disability, I also had to do four hill climb or sprint events just to show that I was um, safe in a competitive environment with the adaptations in my car, which are hand controls. And I also had to demonstrate that I could exit the car unaided in seven seconds. So... When I found out about the hill climbs and sprint events, I kind of started looking into what that would look like. And and basically it was um, so time trials against the clock. So you're not on a circuit with other people um, starting at the same time. You all start at kind of minute intervals and drive a course mapped out by um, the organisers. And um, your, your time then you compete against other people in terms of how how quickly you get around the course. Um so that, that seemed quite fun. Um, the seven second unaided exit was something that I did worry about because, uh, I mean, you know how long it takes to get out of a car when you're in a wheelchair. It mm. doesn't take seven seconds. Mm. So I, and I did start to question at the time whether it was actually possible for me to do that. And I, I thought, well, is, is my spinal injury maybe too severe for me to actually undertake this sport? But obviously, as soon as I thought that, I had to I had to just go for it. So um, the, the sprints were done over the case over the course of, um, I think, two years, I've, a year and a half. Uh, first of which I won my class, which I was uh, very surprised at, but obviously massively pleased about. Um, and the seven second exit was actually done on the second attempt of ever, ever trying it. So um, I, I left it a little bit late in terms of being prepared for my first race because I did the seven second exit about three days before my first race, um, which uh, I suppose gave me less time to worry about it, but um, preparation could have been better. So how, how do you get out of a car in under seven seconds as a, as a quadriplegic? Uh, it, it depends what it is. And I, I can say that because um, my, I raced the Porsche Cayman S and like I say, that was done on the second attempt and it I, I put a mattress on the floor next to the door and I lift. So you, you're, you're doing this from uh, a caged car. So a cage, a full roll cage, racing seats with harnesses in a racing position. So undo the harnesses, um, fling the chair back and then just get your your ass onto the roll cage and throw yourself out, really. Um it's, it's not graceful and it's not pretty, but it's it's quick. Um, but then I I, I recently um, got my rally license uh, last month, and I had to demonstrate that I could get out of the rally car in ten seconds, just because there's different um, time restrictions for different disciplines. Mm. And I tried to do it out of the Toyota 80, 80, GT86, which was the car that I was going to compete in, uh, which changed last minute, and 
it took me an hour to figure out the combination to do it because the the cockpit of the Toyota is so small. Mm. Um, I, I did it eventually, um, and I did it uh, a few times to make sure that it you know it wasn't a fluke. But um, yeah, it, it, the answer is how do you do it? It depends on your body shape, it depends on your functionality, and it depends on how big that aperture of the door is in between the roof and the roll cage, really. So I'm picturing in my mind the Dukes of Hazard, how they they you know they they get inside the window of the car and the doors lock, but presumably your doors can actually open, so that um that that would help, I guess. Well, yeah, and I'm now ashamed to say I've never seen the Dukes of Hazard, so I don't know the reference. <laughs> well, um, essentially, they drive this uh, this classic American car, and um, and and the door doesn't open, so they they basically. They get inside the, the window, the, either the passenger or driver's seat window. They got to basically climb yeah. in the window, and um, and you should definitely look at an old an old version of uh, the Dukes of Hazard, uh, you know, just okay. for, just for some American pop culture Some reference. Yeah. Well, well, I recently went to a NASCAR race, um, and that's how they get in and out of the NASCAR. Um, the drivers, the, the, their doors don't open, and they have mm. to climb in and out a very small space to get in the window. And people did say to me, oh, do you fancy doing this? And I was like, I don't think I'll be able to get out. Um, <laughs> but never say never. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hey, so what uh, what support or resistance did you find in, you know, the motorsport industry for you? And it was uh, it was a world first, correct me if I'm wrong there. You were the first Tetra, uh, also a quadriplegic female race car driver, right? So. We, yep. Was was the industry supportive of you? Did you uh, have to fight to get in? What was the story there? Support was 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 good, but also it it was just a it was a bit of a non-event. So inside the the racing weekends um, that I was part of, the the drivers would um, or came over and welcomed me into you know the paddock but i wasn't treated any differently to anyone else which was exactly what i wanted and exactly why i fell in love with the concept of motor racing in the first place so i think out from the authorities and and outside the support was massive but at the racetrack i was just another driver and i was treated that way and you know if if anyone saw me struggling to get over a curb or whatever to get into the, uh, the 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 briefing room or anything like that. Then yes, they'd be the first. You know, anyone that saw that would come and and help me with with anything like that. But as to, as far as being on the racetrack and and being a disabled driver, I wasn't a disabled driver and I wasn't a female driver. I was a racing driver just like everyone else. And that is why I think most disabled people that race absolutely love this sport. That's so cool. So there's uh, there's other ways you can get into motorsport, right? You could uh, you could be kart drivers. Um, yeah, I, I know a few people that race race carts. Is that mm-hmm. is that the easiest sort of entry level to get into motorsport? Uh, well, it is and it isn't because I think carts um, there there is actually a handicart championship in Europe. So I think there are championships, and I think they're most most of the championships are where they race alongside other disabled carters and i think karting is much more physical than driving a racing car because you have to hold your body up so mm. for me karting wasn't accessible because of the nature of how it's it's you know 
you how you sit in the car, how you control it. I've done it once very recreationally and couldn't reach the brake, so I had to slow down by hitting the tires and was consequently told that I probably shouldn't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on the level of disability, but karting is the most um, accessible in terms of budget. But, again, motor, motor racing, uh, racing cars – can be as expensive or as as cheap as you as you kind of like and you can buy a a tin top um shell and build it yourself if if you've got the the skills and the the inclination and and do it for a lot less money than buying something you know ready to go gt4 kind of category so yeah karting great racing great there's also rallying which is something that i've done recently which i've fallen in love with there's hill climb and sprint events Sprint events can be done in your road car. You just have to have uh, fire over, uh, fireproof overalls and a helmet. So sprinting and hill climbs are a really accessible way to get into motorsport for disabled drivers because the whole kind of problem, if you like, around accessibility is the lack of being able to try this sport out because there aren't the cars for hire which are equipped with adaptations that individuals might need. So being able to hill climb or sprint your road car if it's suitable for um, those disciplines, which most cars are, but it's whether, you know, if you've got a big ute or um, people carrier, it's, it's not going to go well around the track. Whereas if you've got something a bit sporty, it's fun and, and you can you can give it a go with uh, some good results. So there are a lot of different avenues but i think the reason why that not many people do it is because there's just a lack of awareness which is something that i am actively trying to change so tell us a little bit about our sponsorship and your team and how how you brought that all together so naively when i first started racing i thought that sponsors would be falling over themselves to to fund what I was doing because I thought I'm one of one. Um, you know, females are well supported in the race industry because there aren't many and disabled females, there are, you know, even less. So being the only female tetraplegic racing driver in the world, that's going to be me sorted. That couldn't have been further from the truth. <laughs> so my first sponsorship deal came fairly early on in my racing career, but was really, really not um much in terms of finance uh, it barely covered a, a set of slicks but um it, i thought well get the first one under the belt and others may come um but it wasn't until my second season where a couple of companies that i'd had relationships with so my um, financial advisory firm uh, with mitchell asset management i am asset management were um, interested in in coming on board as a sponsor, and then a company called Talent Outdoor, who are an external advertising company, had me at one of their um, conferences to do a keynote speech. And at the end of it, the MD came up to me with um, the uh, the CEO and said, "We'd like to help you, and we'd like to offer you a sponsorship." It, but it wasn't up until um, my second year of racing partway through it that my main sponsor Stanley Black and Decker who also sponsor my charity came on board as a headline sponsor and they saw what we were doing with the charity on a Facebook post and they phoned me 
uh, on Facebook Messenger from America. They explained who they were, how they'd become aware of what I was doing with racing and what I was doing with Spinal Track and said that they would like, would I be interested in them coming on board as the financial and product support? And I thought someone was winding me up. Uh, I genuinely thought it was a bit of a hoax call. And I ended up having a uh, a further phone call with the CMO of the company. And um, we were talking to each other and it transpired that our motto for my charity, which is anything is possible, was their European motto the, the year before. And both of us just stopped talking. We were like, we've got goosebumps. This is really weird. And they've been my biggest advocate and my biggest support network ever since. And uh, I'm grateful to all my sponsors. Um, but, it, 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 you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I, I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. Wow, that's amazing. So tell us about Spinal Track because, uh, you know, this is helping spread the, spread the love of racing uh, in the, in the uh, disabled community. Yeah, so Spinal Track was something that was born out of a realisation that people were seeing what I was doing, wanting to have a go or a first taste and didn't know how. And my partner and I had bought a Golf GCI track prepared car from a friend of a friend who was also a paraplegic. So it was all set up with hand controls. And we bought it for a track toy to go and have some fun in. And it quickly became the the catalyst and the tool that we would use for something that we wanted to set up that would allow people in my position to experience driving on a racing circuit. And Spinal Track was born and the concept was fairly simple. Track novices could come and be instructed to drive quickly around circuits in our very powerfully tuned golf, which um, we mapped so it was slightly less aggressive for uh, our beneficiaries. But that was actually run out of our own pockets for the first kind of three months. And it got to the stage where we didn't really know how to approach sponsorship for the charity. It was early on where my sponsors hadn't really materialized and I hadn't been able to, to go down that route successfully. And we said we had a discussion. We said, look, with each other, we said, if we can't if we can't find some support literally within the next week, we're going to have to can this because we can't afford to run it out of our own pockets. And in that week, we had an anonymous donation from a friend who wanted to remain anonymous. He wasn't uh, a friend at the time, but he has since become one. And we had a really weird, like coincidental um message from someone who was running a company who wanted to sponsor us but had worked for my dad 15 years ago before my dad had moved to America and had actually known my dad when I'd had the accident Mm. and my dad is not related to the motorsport industry whatsoever he has no ties with motorsports at all it was just this guy saw what I was doing on Twitter saw the, the charity saw my name and thought this there can't be two of these people with this name who who <laughs> have this history so he, they came on board as a sponsor um of the charity and and then we had further support and and now we've got a board of trustees and we went from being a non-profit company into a charity and now we're sponsored by stanley black and decker and went from having one car and now we've got four so 
we're we're massively grateful for for where spinal track has gone and we just um we love what we do with it i love being able to offer people the same excitement and joy that i get from racing cars um around a, a racing circuit in in our golfs and and ne- from next month we'll be able to offer people a rally experience as well in the toyota gt86s i talked about before well listen you're thankful to your sponsors i think you know, I speak on behalf of, uh, you know, disability community worldwide. We're thankful for your vision and, you know, and just going out there and doing it because uh, that's ultimately the way these things start. You have this idea in mind. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. You know, that's that's how I classify adventure. You just don't know what the outcome of, of this, uh, this, this idea you have will be. And, you know, look what's happened. Um, you know, it, it's so, it's so, so good to good to see. Um, Natalie, you're uh, the president of the FIA Disability and Accessibility Commission. What, what role does that, um, you know, what does, what does that entail? Yeah, my, my role with the FIA is still something that I really don't know how that happened. It's, it's something, it's a massive privilege to work for the FIA. You know, I'm surrounded by people who absolute motorsport legends and have given so much to motorsport in various different capacities and John Todd giving me the role of chairing this commission is something that I'll be eternally grateful for because the role and the commission has a real chance to make a difference because motorsport has always been accessible to disabled drivers through its very nature of how you control a car Mm. in the same way that disabled people can drive on the road in the same car as able-bodied people, the same concept is applied to motorsport. Technology and adaptations allow us to compete on level terms. And through through that way, we you know, disabled people have been competing in motorsport for a long time, but there's never been a support network or a proactive approach to making sure that this is protected in in terms of safety, but also that this is this is made more available and that more people know it's possible. And so Jean Todd had a vision with a disability and accessibility commission where we we govern the rules that um, and create the rules in some respects to dictate how motorsport is accessible to disabled applicants. And, you know, we, we're growing it. We're changing the future of motorsport, not just for disabled drivers, but for everyone competing. I mean, Alex Zanardi just competed at Daytona this year, and um, he was an F1 driver who lost his legs in a single-seater crash, um, amputated on pretty much on collision. And um, he's, he's come back into the sport before this year, um, and he he can compete on on level terms through the adaptations that he has in his car. And to see someone racing at in Daytona 24, who's a double amputee, is so inspiring for disabled racers. But I don't think it's just inspiring for disabled racers. I think it's it's so inspiring for the disabled community to see that someone can do what he does, but obviously and also be supported by the non-disabled community and it normalizes disability. I really feel that motorsport is a sport that can normalize people who have disabilities. And I think that that's a massive 
a massive thing for a sport to be able to do on a social level. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. What does the future hold uh, for, for you personally, Natalie, and also for uh, the Spinal Track organisation that you set up? So the future will hopefully hold more podiums for me. It will hold much more rallying, which I'm really enjoying. But just doing what I'm doing with racing, you know, I'm not I'm not the next F1 driver. Um, I'm I'm confident with my abilities, but I I haven't got ambition to be anywhere near things that I don't have the natural skill to be able to do because I'm realistic. I think that I can I can do very well in championships that are competitive, but I'm not going to start talking about racing at the moment because it's just not appropriate. I think that for spinal track, we can potentially find people who have never really considered motorsport before, and we can change their perception of that, potentially to get them into motorsport, but potentially just to give them something that is has always been on their bucket list or gives them a boost in other parts of life. And I think the more we can, um, the more days we can run, the more we can reach out to people and give them these experiences. But we're still growing as a charity, so I don't know where the direction is for us. All I know is that I want. So I want to reach out to more people to give them the experience of driving a car on the limit, which is um, massively empowering. So I guess just watch this space. I've got an idea around the spinal track. If you've got a, you know, a model that works, um, you know, expanding that globally and, uh, and, and helping other countries uh, set, set that up might, might help you scale that, uh, uh, that initiative. Um, so yeah, no, yeah, we've 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 we have discussed this. This is something that would be incredible for us to do. We just uh, we don't know how to achieve it. Maybe you could help. <laughs> well, I I do know one of uh, one of my friends. He helped set up some hand controls in. Uh, it's called Hampton Downs here in the South Island of New Zealand. It's a motorsport park, and uh, mm-hmm. just just last year he he teamed up with a. Uh, with a company called Melrose Wheelchairs, and Phil Melrose, the founder, is a is a motorsport guy through and through. He actually broke his back um, racing power boats, um, flipped a flipped one of these ocean going power boats, and uh, yeah. but anyway, um, there's there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of guys down here in New Zealand that uh, that you know. If you uh, want to connect with, I can make some introductions uh, for sure. That'd be fab. I I know Melrose very well, um, just because they are a wheelchair rugby manufacturer, and there aren't many around. So Melrose was my first wheelchair rugby chair. I had no idea that Phil was a um, a motorsport fan. So yeah, that might be great to connect. He's got uh, he's got a, a garage full of uh, cars. <laughs> he, he loves them. So uh, yeah, he'd be, he'd be a good guy to link in with. Um, and I That'd actually hope, hope to have him on the show here too at some point. And so where can people learn more about you, connect with you, Natalie, online? So um, my handles are Natalie McGloin on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Natalie is spelled with an H, so N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E-M-C-G-L-O-I-N. I have a website, nataliemcgloin.com. Um, Spinal Track has uh, the same uh, handles, spinal track handles for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and spinaltrack.org 
is the website. If you're interested in in learning more about what we offer, give us a drop us an email, send us a tweet. All of the uh, the modern ways to communicate are, uh, are the way that we get we get in touch with people. I can say that Natalie's social media feeds are super awesome. They're very, very interesting. So go out there and uh, make sure you follow along and join in the conversation. Natalie, it's been absolutely amazing to to chat with you. Uh, I'm just buzzing with excitement and um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to make it a habit of going down to, um, to our motorsport park um, down south, as I mentioned, and, and have a go because I do like uh, adrenaline and I, uh, I do like to go fast. It'd be nice to do so in a, in a controlled and, and uh, reasonably safe uh, setting. So, um, yeah, you've kind of inspired me to go out and uh, give that a go myself. Fantastic. If you find yourself down in New Zealand, we would be more than happy to host you and um, definitely show you around. So uh, make sure you you get in touch. It's on the bucket list. I'll be there at some point. (laughs) All right. Hey, well, um, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks so much once again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.